My hope is in the Lord, who gave himself for me. Good morning, this is Pastor Lane Jones, speaking for the Beacon of Hope Broadcasting Ministry of Calkins Baptist Church near Milanville, Pennsylvania. You know, we say that a lot, but I bet many of you have never visited downtown Calkins. Well, if you haven't ever been there before, you've really missed out. It consists of the Grange Hall, the Graveyard, and our church. That's Metropolitan Calkins. So hope that eventually some of you might get a chance to visit us up here in the downtown. And uh, don't blink. Uh, we don't even have a stoplight, but we're more than glad to have you come and visit our church sometime at your convenience. But anyway, last week I had said that we're starting a series on the Book of Romans. And so we're starting there today. So before we pray, let me just give you a brief outline of the book. What we're going to cover today is the first 17 verses of chapter 1, and in that section, Paul's basically introducing himself to the Roman church. After that, he begins to deal with the understanding of the doctrines of the gospel. He mentions the gospel right at the end of our section for this morning, but uh, he then begins to develop those doctrines in a way that is unprecedented throughout the scriptures, and you just won't find another spot in the entire Bible that goes over the doctrines of the faith in any more thorough discussion than the book of Romans from chapter 1, verse 18 to the end of chapter 11. Then when he gets to chapter 12, he begins to talk about living out the doctrines of the gospel. We call many of that times they call that the practical section. And then in chapter 16, there's some uh, closing greetings and thoughts. So, before we get started on this book, let's just go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the wonderful book of Romans, Lord, for the impact that it has had on, really on world history and on the eternal souls of men since you inspired it and brought it into the world through the Apostle Paul's pen. Lord, we're grateful that we're able to take the time to look at this book, and we ask for understanding as we do so. May you be glorified in this. Lord, may you speak to hearts Convince us of the truths that we need to grab onto today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as Christians, we can constantly battle our old nature, which is ashamed to stand for the truth of the gospel, especially when we do not know a person very well. Um, you know, I had a, a friend of mine, many of you may know him, his name is Bob Longenecker. He's been in our community for over 30 years, and he's been the head of Child Evangelism Fellowship in both Wayne and Pike Counties during that time period. And Bob's a good friend of mine. And I remember him saying something one time in passing to me, and I don't think I'm going to get it exactly word for word, but I believe I can give you the concept. He was talking about being in high school, and I was going to a, just a normal public school in his area, and how he took a stand for the Lord when he got right with God in his public school, you know, right away. And he put it something like this. It's good to start on the path you intend to walk with people. Now, again, I don't think that I got that exactly right, but that's the general concept. It's good to start on the path you intend to walk with people. And so sometimes we, we are, I think, foolish. And I've been there many times to think, well, I don't want to really, you know, say too much at this point about what I think and what I believe. I don't hardly know this person. And I get those fears because I, I deal with them as well. But I will tell you that I think what we call Uncle Bob, Bob Longenecker's thought process is a good one. And that is let people know who you are and what you stand for right away. Don't don't hide it. Remember years ago, my son, Nehemiah, my second son, was uh, at his friend's house. 
and um, his friend introduces Nehemiah to um, his his grandmother. And so this first time Nehemiah met this woman, and she told us about it later because of the unusual thing he said when when he first met her. He said, hi, I'm Nehemiah Jones, and I'm against abortion. Now, isn't that kind of funny? That She took it as a very funny thing as well. Like, here's a five-year-old kid saying, I'm Nehemiah Jones, I'm against abortion. And she laughed, laughed and said, no, well, I'm against abortion too, Nehemiah. But the interesting thing was that, you know, he... he took his stand early, kind of let you know what he was thinking. And we didn't prompt him for that by any stretch, but uh, that's what came out of his mouth. And, you know, sometimes, folks, we as Christian adults can be ashamed of standing up for our Lord and shame on us. And so the Apostle Paul, when he introduces himself to the church at Rome through this letter, you'll find it comes out quite clearly where he stands about Jesus Christ and the gospel and why he does so. So let's start right in first seven verses are Paul's greeting to the church of Rome. And he says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. So let's just stop right there in mid-sentence. Notice what he's doing. He's describing himself. And how does he describe himself? Well, he mentions three different things about himself. I'm a Jesus, I'm Jesus' bondservant. Now, a bondservant is someone who is a slave of the Lord, but out of love for him. So you are willingly serving Jesus out of love. That's how Paul first calls himself to the Roman people. He says, I'm Jesus' bondservant. And then he says, I'm called to be an apostle. Now, the word apostle means uh, to be sent on a mission with full authority, the idea of being a messenger or an envoy. So I want you to think about being like an ambassador. But Jesus called a specific number of apostles, and that's what Paul is identifying with. He's actually what we would call one of the apostolic community, and they were very rare. Remember, Jesus had 12 disciples, and it specifically says he called them apostles, sent ones, people who would be his representatives. And so Paul, though he was converted later after Jesus' death and resurrection, Paul is called to be an apostle, and he's given special abilities as a result of that. And so he describes himself, first of all, as Jesus' bondservant, not as his apostle first. He calls himself Jesus' bond slave. Then he calls himself an apostle. I'm called to be an apostle. Then he mentions a third thing about himself, separated to the gospel of God. The idea of being separated is I've been set apart. I've been set apart to proclaim the gospel of God. Now, it's interesting. Paul had an occupation. He was a tent maker. And we don't know him for that. Most people don't know that the Apostle Paul made tents, but he actually mentions being of the same occupation as a, a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, and he said that they were tent makers, so they were of the same occupation. So, But Paul does only makes tents in order to preach the gospel. Sometimes what we do as Christians today is we look at ourselves as whatever the occupation, truck driver, a pastor, um, you can name it, executive. And then you think, and I hope I'm a witness along the way. Well, it's just the opposite for the Apostle Paul. I'm an apostle. I make tents in order to, to fund the, the ministries. That's kind of what he's doing. And so that's how he describes himself, a bondservant and apostle set apart to proclaim the gospel of God. But what is the gospel of God? 
And so he goes into that next because a lot of people claim to be preachers, pastors, whatever, uh, uh, priests, whatever the, the kind of clergy reference is for their denomination. But what is the gospel of God? So he begins to define it. I'm in verse 2, which he promised through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So the first thing he says about the true gospel is that it was promised in the Old Testament, and he will back that up repeatedly in his teachings throughout this book. He mentions something else, that is, it's focused on foretelling the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ, because he says this next. So it's something that was that was promised before through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So what Paul describes as the true gospel, it's promised in the Old Testament, is focused on foretelling the, the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, he says he's man because... He is part of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, way back in a thousand years before Jesus, a man lived by the name of King David. And David was by far the greatest king that Israel ever had. Now, he wasn't a perfect man. He had some scandals that came during his 40-year reign. But when you look at his life and and love for the Lord, it's very clear that God considers him not only the greatest king that Israel ever had, but the greatest king ever in the history of the world. He says It says in one of the Psalms, he's the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, this man, David, was, was at one point trying to serve the Lord, and he actually decided, I want to build God a house. And what he meant by that, he wanted to build the temple. Now, he was not allowed to do that. God said, well, you've been a man of war. There's a lot of blood on your hands. You've, you've you know, fought a lot of battles. And I think, very practically speaking, if David built the temple, a lot of nations may not have wanted to come to it because David had been a warrior and defeated many of them. What God said is, you're going to have a son, David, and he's going to be a man of peace, and I'm going to use him to build the temple. But then the Lord said something very interesting. And by the way, it's found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you want to study that on your own, God says to David, I'm going to build you a house. You wanted to build me one. I'm going to build you one. And he goes on to say how that when David dies, he's going to let his son come to the throne. But he begins to talk in a way that indicates that there is a human son involved and there is also the promised Savior of the world that's involved in this prophecy as well. Because God says, I will be his father, he shall be my son. And so we have this very interesting prophecy back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that Jewish scholars understood and believed for hundreds of years thereafter. And that is whenever this promised Savior, this Messiah came, he would be a descendant of King David. And that's the significance of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, okay, the gospel is focused on Jesus Christ, the God-man, and he's man because he's of the seed of David according to the flesh. That's his connection to humanity. By the way, it does not come through Joseph, although Joseph was a descendant of David. Joseph was, in fact, the stepfather. Jesus was virgin-born. Mary herself was a descendant of King David. And so that's where the bloodline connection comes from for our Lord Jesus Christ.
But he not only says that Jesus is human as the son of David, which fulfilled the prophecy of Messiah, but also he said he is God, as was demonstrated by his resurrection from the dead, declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And so the Apostle Paul, when he's describing the gospel, he says it's it's promised in the Old Testament, so I'm not making up something that wasn't predicted. Number two, it was focused on foretelling the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ. As man, he is a descendant of David. As God, he has demonstrated his deity by his resurrection from the dead. And then in verse 5, Paul describes the work that God has done in his life, and he also really compares it later on to how he worked in the Roman uh, believers' lives as well, because that's the people that he's trying to, that he wants to go to and minister to. So in verse 5, he says this, through him, that is, through the, the Lord, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So what Paul is describing now is the work that God had done in his own life and now ministry. God had given him grace. And grace is what we all need in order to be saved. Let me just say this. There are scriptures that tell us God gives grace to the humble. And if you are one who you don't know who the true God is, you don't know him personally, you know you have a need there. Can I say a very first step that you might want to take is to truly humble yourself before God. Ask him to lead you to the truth. And I'm hopeful that it's... Part of that has been that you've been led to listen to this broadcast today. But if you will have a humble heart before God and be teachable, God says he gives grace to the humble. The Apostle Paul says, through him, we have received grace and apostleship. So he says, not only did I receive God's grace, and I think he's talking about salvation there, but now I've received apostleship. I've been called now to be a minister of the gospel in a very unusual way. God's done a wonderful work in his life. And what's the point of him going out and sharing the gospel with the world? And that's what he was trying to do. He said, for the obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. So what he's trying to accomplish is to help people across the world to come to know and obey the Lord their God. And, of course, that comes through knowing God's Son, Jesus Christ. So Paul describes himself. He describes the true gospel. He describes what God has done in his life, a little bit of a testimony. And now he describes his original audience. So now we get in on who he's writing to. So in verse 6, he says, "...among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ." So whoever he's going to write to here, they're obviously believers. And so they, too, have been called to salvation. But now in verse 7, we, spe- we get the specific people. He says, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we know the original audience. Paul was writing to the Roman believers or the Church of Rome, we would call them. Now, when I say Church of Rome, don't think like St. Peter's Basilica and anything like that. That was not built for another 1,500 years or so. Okay, so none of that's there. Don't think really of any kind of a specific building as being the Church of Rome. Think of it as the people. That's really what they're doing. Matter of fact, I read recently, several months ago now, but that 
the first church building that they know of, at least, was not built until, say, 100 years after Christ. So believers in the Apostle Paul's age who are called the church don't think a building, think the body of believers, the group of people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so he writes to his audience and he says, you too have been called to salvation. You too are beloved by God. You too are called to be saints. Now, that brings up something. You'll notice, and I'll just read it to you again, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now, in in some circles, we make a special deal out of sainthood. The idea that, well, so-and-so did so many good things, we're going to make them a saint. Can I just tell you, honestly, it's really not biblical. Not only do you have every person in the Church of Rome called a saint, I'll read to you again, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. That's Romans chapter 1, verse 7. But you find very similar wording in the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, the book of 1 Corinthians is written to a different church, the church in, in Corinth, Greece. This church had a lot of problems and a lot of problem people, a lot of sin issues going on. But listen to how Paul starts out his letter to that church. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. I'm in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I just read verse 1. Listen to verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. So in the biblical sense of the word, Every true believer in Jesus Christ who's not playing a game, who's not really believed in a false gospel, who's not, um, who's, who's not faking it or, or, or misled, every true born-again Christian is a saint of God. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and you belong to him, you are a saint. What does that mean? Well, that means that you have been set aside to the Lord for a purpose. He, he has a purpose for your life, and it's a wonderful thing. So he goes on and he says, um, back in Romans chapter 1, verse 7, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he describes how they too have been called to salvation. They are beloved by God. They're called to be saints. They too are to be blessed by God. Uh, and the Paul wishes for them to have God's grace and his peace. Boy, isn't that great? God's grace is his help that you don't deserve. And how often do we need God's help when we don't deserve it? And that's really how we get saved. God helps us. We didn't deserve it. And so he says, may God's grace be with you and God's peace. And how often we need that rest in our soul. Maybe turmoil is going around in your family or in your workplace or at school. And you, boy, you just wish you had some of God's peace. Well, it's rather interesting that Jesus had said to his disciples, he said that I'm going to leave my peace with you. And it's not like the world gives. So it's not like just a peaceful circumstance. Jesus really can give you rest in your soul, even in times of suffering. And I've seen that with people who are even lost a loved one. Note what a tragedy that is when someone loses their spouse. And yet to see them, it doesn't mean that they don't hurt, that they don't weep. We have a missionary that uh, we support. But for a number of years now, we were supporting him before I even got here. And uh, he is currently in Puerto Rico. And so he is involved in a Bible school down there and helps out and has been doing that for a number of years. And uh, recently his wife 
suddenly came down with a, a major illness that took her life within a few weeks. And very interesting to read his letters. It really was. To hear him say how he was he was thankful and confident in the Lord. He was witnessing for Christ in the hospital as his wife was dying. He says, God is with me. It hurts, but God is with me. And what what an encouragement, honestly, to listen to this dear brother, trusting God, even praising God, at really one of the lowest points in his life. And that, that only God can do. And so Paul is wishing for these believers God's grace and his peace. And listen to where it's coming from, from God our Father, and you'll notice our Father, not merely the Father. So Paul is saying it's mutual here because these folks, he's writing to our believers in Christ as well. So it's God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Is he your Father too? Is God your Father? What a blessing it is when he is because you can literally pray to him knowing that he cares because he is, in fact, your Father. So that's Paul's greeting to the Church of Rome. Then he has this desire that he mentions to these people to visit the Church of Rome. And so I got thinking about this. Well, why do you want to visit certain areas? I have some some sons of mine that have traveled a lot. My daughter, I mentioned last week, uh, just left to teach for three years in Guam. And so my kids have done uh, quite a bit of traveling, a little more than mom and dad have done. Well, why do people travel? Well, sometimes it's the scenery. Oh, you, there's some beautiful places. My kids will sometimes tell me, Dad, you should see some of these national parks. Believe it or not, their favorite one is Yosemite out in California. And they've seen a number of them. We took them to Glacier for my wife and I's 30th anniversary. We, you know, we've been different places, but some people go there for the scenery. Some people go places for the food. Oh, there's some of the greatest food in this country or that place. Some people go there maybe because they got a girlfriend or boyfriend there and they're trying to kind of work on that relationship. So they want to get in the area where their, where their uh, boyfriend or girlfriend may live. Another thing is uh, uh, some great things to do or see. You know, so there's some great historical sites, maybe down in Gettysburg or you want to go to some uh, major like where the Inca Empire was or you want to see the Aztec Empire where that was, something along that line. Well, Paul's not really interested in sightseeing or cuisine. Why does he want to go to Rome? Well, he's going to tell us in verses 8 to 15. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. That's quite a compliment. Paul is complimenting the Roman Christians, saying your faith has literally become world famous. Now, let me just say this. It didn't become world famous because things were easy for them. Okay, it's not that, and don't think that there's, you know, some, again, big, glorious church. There wasn't. Many of these people were suffering. And so the Apostle Paul, when he actually gets to Rome, it wouldn't be like maybe he was hoping when he wrote this book. He actually goes there as a prisoner. That's how he gets there. And eventually, though, he'll be let out for a short period of time by the emperor. He'll eventually be rounded up again and and executed by Emperor Nero. And if we're, uh, if what I've read is correct, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul were both executed under Nero and both may have been executed in Rome. So he says, I, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for your all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers 
making request, if by some means, now at the last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. So you'll notice that he tells the Roman believers that he's been constantly praying for them. Now that's encouraging. I, I don't know about you, but when I learn that someone's been praying for me, that lifts my spirits. It just encourages my heart and helps me. I remember having a teacher when I was in 10th and 11th grade. Now, this is a very small private Christian school up in New York State where I went for those two years, 10th and 11th grade. And there was a lady in that school. Her name was Miss Mason. Matter of fact, I don't think she ever married. Uh, she probably is in her um, late 60s or 70s now. Going back uh, just a few years back, maybe 10 years ago, to see her, um, she had, they had some kind of a special birthday party for her. I forget what she was turning at that point. But um, that woman did not teach, you know, hundreds of kids. It was a very small school that she was the main teacher in. But one of the things I remember her saying, and I even asked her about it, I believe, when I went back all those years later, she said, I pray for every one of my students every day. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Beacon of Hope broadcast, a ministry of Calkins Baptist Church. Now, back to the message. And she said, I pray for every one of the students that I've ever taught every day. And I have, there have been times where I have been very low in my life and very discouraged. And I have brought back to mind, and God's reminded me of Miss Mason up there in New York State, still praying for me. And my folks, my dad just passed away again, but my but my mom is still praying, and, and and my folks, of course, were praying for me for years, and just reminding myself of some people that I was confident were praying for me. That made it that sometimes really helped in a, in a time when I was low. And here's the Apostle Paul telling this church, and he's not been there yet. He's never even physically been there yet, and he's saying, "I've been without ceasing making mention of you always in my prayers. I'm constantly." and consistently praying for you when I'm praying for other people. Isn't that encouraging? Now, and one of his chief requests he mentions in the next verse, in verse 11, back in verse 10, actually, making request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. So he's saying, I'm praying for you, but I'm also praying that I'll be able to come and meet you and minister in your church. So why does he want to come to the church of Rome? Well, he goes and gives us a little more information in verse 11. The next verse, he says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. So you notice he doesn't mention any pasta or anything like that. What's he mentioning? He says, I, first reason why I want to come is to impart a missing spiritual gift to further establish you in Christ. Now, I don't even know if he knew what spiritual gift that may be. Maybe he did, but we're not really told that. But he really just wanted to help them in some area that they may have been lacking in. But then he mentions something else in the next verse. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. So he not only wants to minister to them with some kind of a, uh, whatever spiritual gift they may be lacking that he might be able to help them with, but he also wants to enjoy mutual fellowship through their mutual faith. And I'll just tell you, I know what that's like many, many times over, where you meet a, a believer that you've never met before, 
and you just have a great time getting to know this believer in Christ, sharing your testimonies maybe or something God has done in your life. Maybe it's also, I, I have friends that I know are believers. Uh, a pastor friend of mine lives down toward Madisonville that we like to get together and just fellowship and pray for each other. And those are great times of encouragement. Just this this evening, we have a, a church service on our Wednesday evening about 6.30. And this evening, our assistant pastor had a friend of his that he and his family came and were presenting to us what they're doing in the field of Brazil. They're in southern, way, way southern Brazil. And that's where God has called them to serve. And it was just encouraging to meet this uh, this young fellow. He's got six kids and and uh, seems like a really, really nice young man and doing the work of the Lord down there in southern Brazil, trying to reach people for Christ. That mutual faith that we have, we can talk on the same level because we're both believers in Christ. It's just a real encouraging thing. And may I just slip something in here? That is, those of you that may be single, I would just urge you to find another believing person that you're going to date and eventually marry because it is so much better to be able to fellowship on the spiritual level. It just really, really is. So he goes on and he says, I, I want to come because I want to give you some spiritual gift and I don't think of anything like in a package. He's talking about maybe some area of, of their church ministry um, and the, their understanding of the gospel and its effects on their lives that they didn't quite get yet that he could help them with. But then he also wants to be have that mutual fellowship because of their walk with the Lord. Now, he then mentions how he had often unsuccessfully planned to come to them. Verse 13, he says, Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I have often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. So, Paul clearly says he wants to have an eternal impact for good on their church. I want to have some fruit among you. He's talking about having an eternal impact. He's talking about making a difference so he helps them. So he wants to be a blessing to them, have an eternal impact with them. And then he says that in verse 14, he does this because he feels indebted to all the peoples of the world. Verse 14, he says this, I am a debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to unwise. Now, what does he mean, Greeks and barbarians? Well, in the Greek mentality, now the Romans are are not Greeks, but they're heavily influenced by Greek mentality and Greek culture. So he says in the Greek mentality, you have two groups of people. You have the Greeks and you have everybody else. And everybody else was considered a barbarian. So what Paul is really saying in their culture is he's saying that I feel indebted to people all across the world. Indebted in what way? Well, he's indebted because he has the truth of the gospel, a relationship with Jesus Christ that le that leads to eternal life. It leads to forgiveness of my sins. It leads to rescue from hell, which we all deserve, and eternal life. And so Paul says, I feel indebted to everybody. I need to tell people. I need to tell everybody I possibly can about what God can do for them, what Jesus has done for me, and what he can do for you. It reminds me of an Old Testament account in which there was a, the city of Samaria, 
was uh, in in um, kind of it's a, the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel when they split. Um, it was surrounded by I believe it was the Syrian army, and of course Syria and Israel have been fighting for for literally centuries. And so the Syrian army had s- surrounded the capital city in the northern kingdom, and they were they were starving. The people were about ready to completely um, uh, just collapse because of not getting any food in or out of the city. So right on the brink of just total collapse, God in his mercy made these made the Syrians think that some army, maybe the Egyptians or somebody was coming, they heard in, in their minds the sound of, of chariots and thundering hooves. And so they literally abandoned their camp surrounding the city and took off. Now, no one knew that except there were some lepers. Now, lepers are outcasts of society because they're contagious. These guys are sitting outside of the city of Jerusalem. They can't go in there. As a matter of fact, they're discussing this. They said, if we go inside the city, then we're going to starve with the rest of the people in there. They said, well, you know, if we sit here, nothing's going to happen. Maybe we should just go and fall on the mercy of the Syrians. Maybe they would give us something to eat, and if they don't, and they kill us, well, we're going to die anyway. And so these lepers, and there's not very many of them, they decide they're going to just throw themselves on the mercy of the Syrian army. And so as they march to the camp, what they find is no one's there. And they're looking in tent after tent, and there's all this food and all these you know, wares, stuff that, that were valuable, just laying there. And they began to not only eat like crazy, you can't imagine that, but they're even taking stuff out and starting to kind of bury and hide stuff places. And all of a sudden, I don't know, one of them speaks up and says to the rest of them, we're not doing well here. He, they said, if we don't go back and tell the people in the city of Samaria, if we don't go back and let them know, that they can come out here and get enough food for everybody, then God is going to punish us. Because this is a day of good tidings and we're holding our peace. That's what they said. And so that night they went back, they went to the gates of Samaria, which were not very far away. This was They were being besieged. So they went back there, they called to the porter, they said, look, there's nobody in the camp of the Syrians, we can't explain why, but there's no one there. And so the king of Israel, long story short, goes out. He didn't trust it right away, but they found that what they were saying was true, and the people were rescued from starvation. But isn't it interesting that those lepers felt indebted to let the starving people know that they could live? And may I say to you, and I'm saying this to me as well, when we know Christ as Savior, we owe the world a chance to hear. We owe it to them. And there are just many people, and I know we you know we type, like to think that you know, the United States, there's so many people that have heard the gospel. I'll just say this. A lot of people have not heard it clearly. They really don't get it. They don't understand. And we need to be actively telling people how to be saved, those of us who know what it's like to be saved ourselves. And so the Apostle Paul, who's been rescued himself from being a proud religious man who persecuted Christians— because he thought he was right, that Jesus was, was not the Messiah, was a blasphemer. When God struck him down on the Damascus Road and God changed his whole course of life, now he realizes, I got to tell everybody, people are going to hell and they don't know. And so he said, I'm a debtor. 
It doesn't matter whether you're cultured or not. It doesn't matter whether you're wise or not. I feel like I owe you a chance to at least hear that you can be saved. That's what he's saying. So we come to verse 15. He says, so as much, this is how I feel. So as much as is in me, so like the, with everything I, I, I feel, with all the zeal I possess, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. So he says, I feel indebted to everybody. I really would like to come and minister to you guys also. And so that's Paul's laying out why he wants to come to Rome and why he'd like to minister there. And he'd like to get there as soon as possible, but it's got to be in God's will. He can't just do it on his own. Well, that leads us to verse 16 and 17, which is where we're going to stop for today. But it's it's the core of what Paul was talking about. It's Paul's core beliefs about the gospel of Christ, because there are a lot of people, and I'm sure many of you know what I'm talking about, there are a lot of people that say, I believe the gospel, I'm a Christian. But we do need to ask the question, well, what do you think the gospel is? By the way, the word gospel literally just means good news, okay? So if you're wondering what, so think about those lepers again. They're saying, this is a day of good tidings, and we're holding our peace. This is a day of good news, and we're not telling anybody. So what is the good news of the gospel? Well, the good news of the gospel is that you can be saved. It's, it's by the way, not something that everybody wants to hear because the first part of that is you're lost. But that's just the reality. But when you come across people who get it, that they're lost, yes, the gospel is very good news. If I realize I'm headed toward hell, which is true of all of us, but there's a way out. Jesus is the Savior. And so this is one of the major motivations of Paul to live and then eventually to die for Christ is what he believes about the gospel and his call to proclaim it. So this will also function as the heart of what will follow in the rest of the book as Paul lays out the Bible's most extensive explanation of the righteousness of God as seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ and how salvation that God provides for his people should be lived out on a daily basis. So what does he say? He says, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And then verse 17 says, For in it, or in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, the gospel, the core of the gospel, are two blessings and a timeless principle. The, the blessing is, first of all, a manward blessing. And that is, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So what's the manward blessing? Well, it is that God can save you. And what salvation involves is, first of all, the saving of your soul and also the saving of you from sin. And those are really two slightly different things. Let me, let me see if I can illustrate it for you with a few examples. Saving your soul. I recall a guy, I'm not going to use his real name, I'm going to call him Frank. And again, that's not his real name. What a blessing one day when I got a call from this guy I'll call Frank, and Frank was very, very upset, not at me, but at 
a conviction that God had brought upon his heart about his own sin. Frank was a churchgoer, had been in our church, actually had joined our church, claiming to be a, a born-again Christian. He told me that he had gotten saved. Yet Frank was a high-powered executive, was not the kind of guy you wanted to cross. I mean, he was a, a man that could fly off the handle, especially in, in while doing his business. Uh, he was a proud man, a self-made man. He was religious. He was church-going. He'd be faithful coming to our church on a Sunday morning every almost every week unless he was traveling uh, for his business. Now, he, again, attends my church for a number of years before his salvation. But on that particular day in early January of 2007, Frank calls me desperately under conviction about his sin, realizing that he's on his way to hell without the Savior. And, you know, I, I didn't have to do much. I got there and... Basically, Frank was ready. I just said, Frank, you know what to do. Um, you know, you can cry out to Christ right now. And he did, man. He got down on his knees. He prayed to the Lord. Think of another guy who I saw. And actually, I didn't see him converted. He was saved before I ever got to our church. But he still attends. And uh, I'll call him Paul. It's not his name. Paul was a kind of a guy that was wild and hippie in his background, uh, did a lot of drugs, was involved in the, the whole immoral lifestyle that came with that life experience, uh, so commonplace, um, and not only in his day, but unfortunately, even often in this day. But uh, Paul, again, came across the gospel and was converted. And so I got to meet him, not as Paul the drug addict, but Paul the converted Christian, and I'll go into more detail in a moment about his life. A third guy I wanted to mention, I'm going to call him Herb. Again, that's not his name either. And like Frank, he thought he was a Christian, uh, also attended my church for a number of years. Now, his language didn't indicate genuine faith in God, and I didn't know that. I didn't hear any bad language around me, but I remember his wife mentioning that she was concerned about the fact that her husband was not truly born again. And although um, Herb um, said he knew the Lord, and I think he thought he knew the Lord, his wife really kind of saw through that. And and so actually it was Frank's conversion that helped this guy I'll name Herb to begin to think, maybe, maybe I'm not genuinely saved after all. And I remember the night when... Um, when Herb really got it, that he was that he was not saved. He was the kind of guy that thought that because he had been brought up in church and had been active in church since he was young, that that somehow made him kind of already in. I think he felt like uh, by his baptism, maybe as an infant, and by just you know being a a fairly good person over the years, he kind of always was in. Just needed to make a few things right. Well, by the time he came. To our church, he was thinking that he, he realized he could not be saved without Christ, but he thought he kind of already was all, always in. That's kind of where he was at. And I didn't know all these things. I, I uh, you know, I'd, I'd talked to him about salvation, but um, that's kind of where he was at for a number of years in our church. Well, what happened when these three men were converted? Well, Frank, the guy who was the high-powered executive, the guy who who had some anger issues, proud man. Uh, Frank told me shortly after his conversion, he ran into several tests of his ability to control his temper. I mean, right after each other, boom, boom, boom. 
where the, he really felt the devil was going after him. And that very well may have been true, but I really think there was something else going on that Frank didn't maybe realize at the time. And that is, not only was God allowing Satan to possibly tempt him, because God doesn't tempt us to do evil, but he may allow Satan at times to get at us. But the reality is, Frank was learning something, even as a new believer, and that is that he had to control his temper as a Christian now. And it's really neat that Frank, though I'm not saying he did everything perfectly in all those situations, he, it was on his radar screen. He was really thinking about that. And so as he's working through his anger issues, God is working in his life and maturing this dear brother. And to be quite honest with you, I've had a chance since his conversion to work with him quite closely on a couple of major projects, and it's just, you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know this guy had had anger problems um, when you when you work with him. He's been very patient, not flying off the handle, uh, uh, a great blessing. You see, God doesn't just want to save your soul, and he wants to do that, but he wants to save you from your sins. He wants to make you a new person. Well, how about the, the hippie guy, the guy, what did I call him? I called him Paul. He's been decades now, thank God. He's been decades away from the booze, the alcohol, all that stuff. He was able to give that up and move on. And I will tell you this, he doesn't give credit to his great ability and his willpower and all that. He gives credit to the Lord for what Christ has done to change him. And the wonderful thing is God has. And so you wouldn't even look at him or think of him as a drug addict, a guy with, who was any in, in that lifestyle at all, God changed his life. He's a he's a, a very um, a reliable citizen today and, and a person who's productive. And so thank the Lord that God didn't just save this guy Paul. He didn't just save him, his soul, but he saved him from his sin. He actually helped him to conquer his sin. Well, how about her? Well, Herb went from a mere church attender who was in the background, had a, a, a skilled job. He was he's definitely a skilled man, but not the kind of guy at all you'd ever think would be up in front of people. After his conversion, he starts uh, wanting to serve the Lord with me. We ended up being visitation partners. So when I'd go out to visit somebody in the hospital or a nursing home or something, man, he'd want to be at my side. And so I would be glad to take Herb along. Herb comes to me a few weeks after his conversion, says, I think God may be calling me to preach. And I was kind of taken back by that. But what a blessing to see God begin. You know, he put him through some tests. But there was studying of the scriptures and, and difficulties that he had to work through. And today, that man is a pastor. And God has completely changed his life from a guy who wasn't even thinking that direction, had thought that way for years. He thought a little about it when he was younger, but completely changed his life. And now he's preaching the gospel today as a pastor. You see, God doesn't just want to save your soul. He wants to save you from your sin as well and make you a new person. And so Paul is saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ why? It's the power of God unto salvation. There's a man-word blessing. There's a blessing that you and I as human beings get from the gospel. He said, I'm not ashamed of it. It blesses people. But there's not just a man-word blessing. There's a God-glorifying blessing because he says this in verse 17, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. 
as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So there's this God-glorifying blessing. And what is that blessing? It's that God is righteous. You say, well, what, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? I want you to think about something. We routinely, maybe some of you are in the same mentality, and I think, honestly, these guys I mentioned were in the same thought process, and that is this. We think God's going to fudge it just a little bit. You know, we think, okay, well, the Bible does say, you know, that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, but I think when we stand before God, God's going to change his mind. I mean, he's not going to throw all those people into hell who didn't accept Christ. We really think God's somehow going to change his mind. He's going to fudge a little bit that he didn't really mean what he said in his word. And can I just tell you, that's not so. Or we think something like this. Well, you know, God's just, you know, he understands. He's got to forgive us. Not realizing that the issue of forgiveness is a huge issue when it comes to how God can be just and forgiving. Now, Paul will get to that later on in this book. But let me just say to you on the the short side on this one, that the Lord is righteous to forgive us because of the cross. That's the only way that man could be forgiven. That's why when you go around the cross, you're going to miss heaven. You just will. Because the reality is you are not good enough to get to heaven. That's exactly why Jesus came to die on the cross. And if you want to try to get to heaven on your own goodness, you will not make it. Because God will keep his word, and, and he's not letting sin into heaven. And so the righteousness of God is revealed in the cross, and the fact that God is that holy and that perfect and yet that loving, that he would send Jesus to die in your place and in mine. And thank the Lord for it. It's a God-glorifying uh, blessing this, the gospel is. But it's also, there's a timeless principle here, and that is the just shall live by faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, th- it, this is not a New Testament truth alone, because this is actually, Paul is quoting from an Old Testament book of Habakkuk, chapter 2 and verse 4. So it's not merely a New Testament truth that the just shall live by faith. This was something that was should have been understood even before Christ was born. Well, but it's also an essential truth. Notice, as is written, Paul says, the just shall live by faith. How you get saved is by faith. It's not by who your parents are. It's not by what church you go to. It's by your faith and your faith in the right person, and that is in Jesus Christ. And not only is it an essential truth, it's, it's, but it's an ongoing truth. What I mean by that is it's not just enough to believe in order to be saved. That's great. But if you want to grow like Frank did, if you want to overcome sinful habits like uh, Paul did, if you want to serve the Lord, have your life transformed like Herb did, then you have to be willing to follow God by faith. And what you find in each of these cases, because I know these men personally, you find that that's exactly this. I'm not saying they're perfect and there's ups and downs, but they've learned and are still learning to trust God one step at a time, to obey him one step at a time, and you find God changing those people's lives as they do that. Why do I know that faith is not something that just ends at your salvation and you kind of go on and live your life uh, any old way? Because Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6 says this, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Okay, so how did you receive Christ? Well, you had to receive him by faith. So continue to walk that way. That's what God wants us to do. He wants us to continue to walk by faith. 
So we can say, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He wants to identify right from the start with the Roman people, with Jesus Christ, with the gospel of God. He wants to establish a connection with the believers in the church of Rome for their mutual faith. He wants to bless these people in the church of Rome. He wanted to present the gospel to people across the world, and they're, they're part of it, a major city in the world at that time. He wants to be part of seeing people's lives changed. And Paul wanted to be a part of the work of glorifying God. And because the gospel is the revelation and of the power of God to save any who will believe, then I would beg you as an individual to believe in, in Christ, to put your faith in him. He is the Savior. He can not only save your soul, but save you from your sin and deliver you. And then those of you that have Christ in your heart and life, proclaim it. Proclaim him to people around you. Tell them the good news. Realize that we have a debt to pay to people. We owe them an opportunity to hear that Christ can change their lives. I'll quote this poem as we close. It says this, You lived next door to me for years. We shared our dreams, our joys, and tears. A friend to me you were indeed. A friend who helped me when in need. My faith in you was strong and sure. We had such trust as should endure. No spats between us ever rose. Our friends were alike, and so our foes. What sadness then, my friend, to find that after all, you weren't so kind. The day my life on earth did end, I found you weren't a faithful friend. For all those years we spent on earth, you never talked of second birth. You never spoke of my lost soul and of the Messiah who'd make me whole. I plead today from hell's cruel fire and tell you now my last desire. You cannot do a thing for me. No words today. My bonds will free, but do not air my friend again. Do all you can for the souls of men. Plead with them now quite earnestly, lest they be cast in hell with me. Let's not be people who have the truth and hide it. Lord, I pray for any who do not know you as Savior, that they'd come to know you. And for those of us that do, Lord, help us to tell others. Help us to be witnesses for thee. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would like some spiritual help, like counseling or prayer, feel free to contact us through our website. If you'd like to listen to this message again or send it to a friend, the link to our podcast is at radiobold.com slash Baptist. As we leave you today, we pray that this broadcast has been a beacon of hope in your life to point you to the light of the world, Jesus Christ. May God's richest blessings come upon you. Thanks for listening. And everlasting life and light, he frees.